Dark Winter Nights True Stories from Alaska is sponsored by Scratch Band. Take a look at your hands. They're so great at picking stuff up. In fact, sometimes they're better at picking up stuff than things that are designed to pick up stuff. If you ever reach down while vacuuming to pick up a stubborn piece of lint and stick it into the end of the vacuum, you know what I'm talking about. Unfortunately, they're actually too good at picking things up, so when they pick up that dime off the floor, they can also pick up all kinds of germs with it. And since hands are great at scratching your face as well, you can end up literally rubbing those germs into your eyes, nose, and mouth until now. Scratch Band allows you to scratch your face with your wrist instead of your hands, and frankly, Scratch Band is terrible at picking stuff up. When you do want to sanitize it, you need only pop it into the dishwasher or even the microwave. Scratch Band, join the evolution. More information at scratchband.life. In today's podcast-exclusive episode of Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska, I speak on the phone with a woman whose battle with alcoholism started at age 12 and within five years ended in tragedy. Alexandra grew up in Anchorage, Alaska, and I spoke with her from her apartment in Vermont, where she is now a law student. Before we begin, I acknowledge stories like these are extremely different depending on whose point of view you are seeing them through. I welcome Alaska-based story submissions that present the other sides of the trauma of alcoholism. Today's episode was produced in collaboration with Recover Alaska, whose mission is to help Alaskans live free from the consequences of alcohol misuse, so we are all empowered to achieve our full potential. There's more information and links to support for those suffering the effects of alcoholism at recoveralaska.org. Here's Alexandra with a story we call, It's Not About Me. Alexandra, it's Rob. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Good. Is this still a good time for you? Yeah. Why don't we just start off with your childhood? What was your going, growing up with your family like? What, what can you tell me about that? I mean, I think it was pretty normal. Like, I'm from Anchorage, Alaska, born in Anchorage. Um, you know, my my dad is a is a family law attorney and my mom is an accountant and I'm the youngest of three. Um, I'm very, I'm the only girl. So I was, I was pretty spoiled growing up. <laughs> I, there's no denying that. Um, but yeah, I had a really good childhood. I don't remember a lot of it, but it was fun. <laughs> good. And so how did alcohol begin to play a role in your life then? How, how did that get introduced? I love it when people in recovery circles talk about being kind of born restless, irritable, and discontent. My, my problem is not alcohol. My problem is me and my personality. And I've, I've always, even as a kid, is just kind of like discontent with things. I think the perfect example is one of my earliest memories is from kindergarten and there's this girl and I always do this thing where like I pick enemies in a class, like I'm going to be better than you, you know, kind of thing. And that's, that's not how you make friends. 
<laughs> and um, I just remember like showing up to class every day to try to like steal her chair. And like that for me, like that's just an example of um, how restless and irritable I was and how much I needed to just feel like I was in control of things for whatever reason. And um, I was very high strung. And I remember the first time that I had alcohol, I was like 12 years old. And I think it, it, I know that it's not everybody's experience that this is how it goes down, but this is how it was for me. You know, like we snuck out of my parents' house and, and I took Kirkland tequila, the worst kind of tequila from Costco, you know, and from the moment that I drank, I knew that it didn't, it didn't affect the way that it affected me was different from the way that it affected my friends. It talks about in recovery circles, uh, you know, we watched other people take drinks with impunity that, you know, we would want to, to drink ourselves or something like that. And that was definitely my experience. I just remember feeling like I didn't have to care so much about what other people thought of me. And, and that's a big part of my story is learning that what other people think of you is none of your business. Like, I just really cared, and I remember that drink took that away, and I just started to feel at ease with myself, and my brain went clear, and and, and I tried to drink the rest of the bottle, you know, and my friends took the bottle away from me, and I blacked out that first night, and, and you know, I woke up the next morning not remembering much about the night before, but just remembering, like, I, uh, I can't wait until I can do that again, and I don't think that's a lot of people's experience with alcohol, but for me, that was the beginning. And I, and I thought that sense of ease and comfort where, you know, wherever I could from then on. Was it, what, I mean, like a lot of people couldn't <laughs> do that just for the taste, you know, I, I couldn't, I could do that. How how did you react to the to the taste of the alcohol? Did you just push through that, or what? What did it taste good to you? I don't remember the taste. Like I'm sure, if for me it wasn't about what it tasted like, it was how it made me feel. And that was that was my experience with a lot of things. I remember one time telling my dad how I didn't like the taste of coffee, but I liked how it made me feel. And he was like, "Well, you might be a drug addict." And he was joking, and but I was, like, so offended, but it was so true at the same time. I just, for me, it was about how it made me feel. Wow. And so it really was, it was medicine for you. It wasn't anything about being social. Well, was it, was there a social element too, or would you have, would you drink it just by yourself alone? The example I like to give with this is I know that in high school, that's supposed to be the thing. But there's this one time where I was invited to like a hangout or whatever. And I was promised that there would be booze and weed. And I get there and there's a six pack of beer and one, one joint. And I just looked at everybody and I left because and now looking back, I'm like, wow, like I wasn't even there for the social interaction. I looked at how much alcohol they had, and I knew that I wouldn't be able to get the type of drunk that I wanted to get. And so I left. And I mean, that I feel like for a lot of alcoholics, that's very relatable. 
Yes. So it's a tool and it's a tool that you, you didn't care if other people were around or not. It was, it was the way you felt it just, did it feel like you could be yourself for once or, or. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It's like, I mean, in recovery, I've obviously had to, you know, cope in different ways, but it's just like that anxiety. We talk about it like the spring, like a spring that gets tight. And I, you know, just so anxious and just so self-absorbed and just thinking about, you know, that you're thinking about me, like almost like a paranoia, like what are you thinking about me? I think some of that too is just being young and a teenager and whatever. But too, when you're so self-consumed, it's really hard to see out of it. And for me, alcohol was a solution to that. And where I could get to the point where maybe if I was drunk enough, then I, then I could talk with you and feel at ease and comfort and say what I wanted to say and be who I wanted to be and not think about me for once. So how did that path continue for you from 12, which I imagine it's got to be pretty tough to continue to get alcohol at 12 as you, as you went through school and how did, how did this evolve? I think it involved in um, like the manifestation of a double life, which is pretty common. I always say when I give talks that my, uh, my drinking was a sprint, not a marathon. So I only drank between the ages of 12 to 17, but it was pretty accelerated. I thought it every chance I could get, it was not easy for me to get a drink, but I felt like it was almost survival. There were some stuff that was that was going on at home. It's not my story to share, but it I I think all alcoholics have something that they drink at. And for me, I it doesn't really matter what that is, but I I pick some things up that I decided that, you know, this is why I really need to drink. And, you know, I played competitive hockey and so you can't you know, my normal friends didn't really uh they didn't want to drink because they were like 14 and 15, you know? <laughs> and, but then I, I had cultivated this other crew of friends that felt like they needed to drink as much as I did. And so I think we, we gravitate towards people that share common interests and my interests just happen to be drinking. <laughs> right. And so were, how did you conceal this from your parents? I mean, that double life. So I was definitely very smart from a young age. And so I, I knew how to perform and, like, be the person that everybody, I felt like everybody else wanted me to be. And so it was actually a, a, until I was 16 and I'd um, added some other substances into my repertoire until things started to kind of fall apart. And um, I couldn't hide it anymore for them. But for a really long time, as long as I kept my grades up and attended all my classes and I was on three different hockey teams and as long as I I did those things and just kind of maintained, nobody knew. And looking back now, I'm just exhausted by that. 
that effort that went into that. But for me at the time, it was really worth it. Yeah. How did you feel during that time when, when you were convincing your parents, they weren't suspicious. What, what was your mood like? Was this something you, you felt like you could do forever? No, I think, I mean, we talk about it like this, the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I, you know, and then to the delusion of alcoholism, like I really believe my crap, right? And then to feeling guilty about it. I wanted to be that daughter for them that they thought I was. I really, really wanted to be, you know, the honor student and, you know, go to college and play hockey and, and, you know, show up for my teammates. And there was an earnest desire there. And it's actually what led me to using other substances like Adderall and like performance kind of stuff is that I eventually, when I, when I needed more alcohol to get drunk, because it's a progressive disease, you know, and that veil started crumbling and I could no longer, when they started to find out that I was no longer, you know, the person that I was presenting to be, it was excruciating. And I caused a lot of harm and a lot of worry in my parents' life. So it sounds to me like you, you're sort of battling with two impossible situations. You, to be the person, it's like a catch 22 to be the person that you think that that you can like live with. That's the person that they want you to be. You need to drink. But when you drink, you know, you're not being the person that they want you to be. Is Mm -hmm. that, tell me like how, how close I am here on that struggle or, or what, what that sort of struggle was like. I mean, that's exactly right. I, I want to be that version of, of myself because it's, you know, it's what I think that, you know, I should be, or, or I honestly want to be, or I wish I could be, but I'm, I'm just so tight. Like I'm just so anxious and, um, without coping skills to life kind of and delusional and, and just have alcoholism. Really, that's all it is. Just alcoholism without a solution. And the solution happened to be drinking and without, without a drink, I'm, I'm just not pleasant. And being in recovery, like we talk about it, you know, it's even like emotional sobriety. I can be completely sober. And like, for me, that that's not enough. If I want to be sober and happy, then I have to do things to be sober and happy, to give back and to reach outside of myself and gratitude and attend meetings and stuff. But yeah, that dryness is kind of like my main setting, unfortunately. Yeah. And so was there a sort of first time that was a wake up call for you? Oh, yeah. That you were able to, that you were able to recover from? What was that? Well, I was able to recover from. In other words, it was um, like your your world got shook, but you were able to, but it wasn't enough to shake you into realizing you needed help. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think for me, I, it's really sad. I, My grandmother on my mom's side passed, and it was the first time that I 
really started to see that I couldn't stop using Adderall and I, and I couldn't stop drinking. So I, I tried to stop for the first time. And then I, I ended up going on a, like a little mini bender and I, and I missed my grandmother's funeral. And that really sucks. I left the house that day with the full intention of coming back. And I, and I didn't come back for like a day or, or so. And I missed my grandmother's funeral. When I did make it back <laughs> to, to my mom was just devastated. It, I've never, I'd never seen her look at me like that before. And, and I couldn't believe that I'd just misplaced time like that, you know, but that's, that's what alcoholism does. You know, I, I chose to drink. I don't know what's going to happen when I take that first drink because I'm just going to want more. And um, my mom has told me since I've been in recovery that she spent the whole night throwing up because not only was she so sad that, you know, I, I'm, that I wasn't home and that, you know, that her mom had died and she has this wake and people coming over and, you know, they're asking her where her daughter is at, but she's also just really worried about if I'm alive or not. And it's, you know, it's really shameful for me to say that I just thought that they were overreacting, you know? And from yeah. there on, it, I know, it's pretty bad, huh? <laughs> from then on, I just couldn't keep, like, the facade together. And I, I, end up, I ended up going to treatment for the first time when I was 16. Okay. And, and so why wasn't that the end of the problem? I just thought, like I said, I thought they were overreacting. Oh, I, so this was not I, a, was this not a voluntary thing? For treatment? Yeah. Oh, no. The first time I went to treatment, it was not voluntary. Well, I mean, it okay. was in the sense that, like, you know, go to treatment or, you know, don't live in our house anymore. <laughs> yeah, and not not a I, great choice, yeah. No, but I just was so delusional. I, that's why I really, or I really think it's tough love is, like, the right answer a lot of the times. Because, like, I mean, I don't know. I can't say that. I just don't know. <laughs> I just really, what, I, I think it's really powerful when, what if I had just not gone to treatment and continued on drinking? I don't know. Maybe things would be different. So you have this first wake-up call. You go somewhat reluctantly to treatment. Is treatment any good if you're going reluctantly in your mind? or? I think treatment is good, even if you're not ready. Why? Because I, it kind of burst my bubble about a few things. I started to learn about alcoholism and my disease. And there's some things about it that it's progressive and it doesn't get any better. And if you take time off of it, like if I stop drinking, like this time, like I've been sober for six and a half years. It doesn't matter if I went and drank tomorrow, 
I would still need the same amount of alcohol to get drunk or more, which is why people with long-term sobriety who go back to drinking often more quickly die uh, from their disease is because it's, it's not like the clock ever stops running for us for whatever reason, biological, mental, whatever it is, it just, I'm always going to need more and it's always my, my consequences are always going to get worse. And I learned that in treatment and having that self-knowledge and going back to drinking is like the worst (laughs) because they say it's like having like a head full of recovery and a, and a belly full of alcohol. It ruins getting drunk. (laughs) Because you know that there's always <laughs> <laughs> yeah, It's very yeah. interesting to say it ruins getting drunk. So you, <laughs> can you tell me more about that? Like you always know that there's going to be like another shoe that's going to drop, you know. It's just there's, there's an end in sight and it's never going to get better. We can't drink like normal people. You Like the way that you drink, you know, I have a, I have a close friend like that. She, like, opens a beer, and she, like, takes a sip, and she's like, yeah, that's a good beer. <laughs> uh-huh. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> then she, like, might let it sit for a while, and then she may pour it out. And I'm like, oh, my God. I can't believe you just did that. <laughs> wow. But, I mean, <laughs> it's just how it is. Because what what you're – you're not. You're amazed because she she could just enjoy it for the flavor and and enjoy it more as a food than a than a medicine. Yeah, exactly. And and okay. that's why Miss um, Joe Schmo doesn't have the same consequences that I do when I drink. You know, I have no business being around alcohol. <laughs> mm-hmm. No business being around alcohol. Were there um, a number of attempts at quitting or what happened? How many, how many more times did you try to quit? Honestly, I, I gave it a good shot after I went to, I went to that long-term treatment facility when I, in my, when I was, uh, when I was 16, I was there for five and a half months. And like I said, I, I learned a lot about myself But when I got out, and I think that this is a lot of people's experience, I had this thought that the problem wasn't alcohol. (laughs) The problem was was Adderall. And I'd I'd just gotten a little bit too crazy with that. And if I could just mind my P's and Q's, that one day I'd be able to drink normally again, that I could just smoke weed. Because, like, weed's fine, right? Like, everybody smokes weed. Like... (laughs) But even I did that alcoholically. That's the weird thing is, like, I didn't even like to smoke weed. It's, but I I tried to do it because I was just so uncomfortable being me. Like, I hadn't come to terms with that yet, unfortunately, <laughs> even though it was pretty obvious. <laughs> what was the situation in your life just before the accident? Situation was I had graduated that long-term treatment facility in April, 
I'd gone back to service high school and now I was the, I was in my brain, I was the weird kid that went to treatment back in like school and stuff and hockey, you know, I've kind of gone back to that double life working at table six. They just turned 17 and I was going to recovery meetings and I was dodging my sponsor and I was just miserable. And I, and I knew that I needed, because the, I knew I needed to stop, but I couldn't, I couldn't figure out how. Even with, with the treatment for five months, you, you still, all, all that time, it's interesting to me, you, you, you still felt like you didn't have the tools you needed to stop? I, it, was, it was like I would I'd try to get sober, like I would stop. I'd stop using or drinking or whatever. Like, have you ever had like a like a rash or something like that's just so itchy, and you can't even yes. like you just need to scratch it. Right. That's that's how it was. It was like I couldn't I couldn't stop. I wanted to stop. I just couldn't keep myself from like scratching the itch. And right, I and you also can't ignore it. It's impossible. It's impossible to ignore. I think a lot of alcoholics have this, like we call it the phenomenon of craving. You know, I just kept up coming up with excuses, like I'll quit tomorrow. Tomorrow I'll quit. Or, like I can't tell my parents that I've relapsed now because, you know, they have family in town, and like look how happy they are. And, you know, I don't want to make this about me. And, I, you know, I've made the last year about me, and I can't do that to them. And then underneath it all is the desire to, you know, continue doing what you're doing because, you know, you're, I'm, I'm selfish and I'm self-centered, and I just want what I want. Mm. That's the truth of it. Can you tell me about the day of the accident? Yeah. It was the worst. <laughs> Don't. <laughs> it was the absolute worst. The so I I guess to set the stage of just kind of how awful I was as a human being. My grandmother had Alzheimer's, and my parents didn't trust me to stay at home yet, and they wanted to have a, a nice, lovely weekend at their cabin out in Willow. And so they went up to the cabin, they left me in the care of my grandmother, and I knew that my grandma wouldn't remember that I was supposed to be staying with her. So I didn't go home to her that night. I went to my parents' house, and I disrespected them, and I threw a party. And the next morning, I didn't sleep at all and had been drinking that entire night, and I I decided to drive her home. Um, an acquaintance at the time, somebody who had spent the night at my house. Mm-hmm. And um, from my recollection, which is not what the police report says, I was driving forward. The police report said I was backing up. And all I remember is 
losing control of this truck that I was driving and, and hitting the bicyclist. And, and then I left the scene because I'm selfish and self-centered. There's no way uh, around that. And I take full yeah, responsibility you, you for still, it. You still feel like you're selfish and self-centered today? Oh, absolutely. I don't think that guilt will ever go away. You knew that you had hit something at the time? Yeah. Do you remember what you were thinking? No. I can tell you how I was feeling, but I can't remember what I was thinking. And how are you feeling? Petrified. Scared. Oh, scared of what? Scared of what, though? I don't know. <laughs> Probably just the situation at hand. So you have just kind of general general recollections of the emotions, but, but it's kind of foggy. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I know that the way that I remember things is not how it actually happened in real life. And I know that from the police reports and like later in the trial, they did like a, a reconstruction or whatever. I mean, I did, I wasn't really paying all that much attention to the, to the trial details, not because I didn't care, but just because I, I, I'm sure like other people involved, I just wanted it over and to serve whatever consequences were going to be handed down to me. Hmm. So in reality, what, what time of day are we talking about? Like, was it in reality, the, uh, the incident occurred around, I believe 1030 in the morning. Mm -hmm. It was actually at the same park that I had my first drink. Wow. And this this is in the summer, I presume, then, if it's a bicyclist? Yeah, July 19th, 2014. What happened to the cyclist? He died. Like, instantly, or, or how did, what happened? Um... I don't, I don't really know. <laughs> okay. I'm, yeah. I just know it's my fault. <laughs> In criminal law, we talk a lot about, but for causation of a crime of like an act. And I was the, but for causation of the incident and his death. Right. Right. In other words, if, if you hadn't been there at that time, this would not have happened. Whether how much exactly. you're responsible for it is, yeah, is is somewhat is, is debatable, I suppose. But um, but their their point is you were the one element that if it had been removed, the situation would have been fine. Exactly. Yeah. And so. When did you find out what you had done? 
Oh, God. Um, so, like, when I tell my story, like, this is this is the point that I really come in on because, it, like, I think it was the my, my, I call it my spiritual experience. It was the first time in my life that I realized the true deep consequences of my actions and how a life can change another just so quick, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, I'd driven home. I remember that. I remember watching the police cars go down the drive, go down the street because my parents' house was literally like, like a forest was in between the park and their house. And I was waiting. I was just like, I was in the house and the police, the police officer came and I don't remember saying this, but there's tape of it that says that I opened the door and I said it was me. I'm the one who did it. Please arrest me. And, and I don't know why the police officer did this, but he told me, you know, not to say anything else, you know, if I'd be willing to take a field sobriety test. And, and so we did that. And I guess I passed. I don't remember a whole lot of it. He sat me down on my parents have like a bench that's right next to the front door. And he took a phone call and he came back and he told me that um, the man had been declared dead at Providence hospital. And that was my spiritual experience. It was the first time in my life that I realized that my actions had affected other people and that would affect other people for the rest of their life. And all I could think about was that this man could have a wife, he could have a daughter, he could have a son, he could have a family, a job, coworkers, and I had taken all of that away from them and him. And I don't know why, but the police officer didn't arrest me. And I kind of, from then on, I kind of, I really, actually, I really wanted to die. I just thought it would be easier for everybody if I just took my own life. But that didn't happen, obviously. What stopped you when you thought about it? Well, actually, I had some intervening forces. They called my parents. My parents made a suicide run. I mean, I can't even imagine how awful that phone call was for them. They've told me that they were they were hanging out at their cabin, their favorite place in the world, and they get a phone call that their daughter has killed somebody drinking and driving. Their daughter, who they thought was sober for like nine months, that just must have been awful. And that fear of driving back to Anchorage from Willow, knowing what's happening. And when my dad got there, he just looked at me and he's like, you're a murderer and I don't want you in my house. And and the police officer was like, we're not going to arrest her. And, and so they took me to Providence Discovery Hospital because I guess I wasn't talking to them. This is all like third-hand knowledge. <laughs> pretty much I was very I don't know I think it was a very traumatic event <laughs> you know of my own doing but all I remember is that I just really wanted to die and Providence wouldn't let me <laughs> I was in a room by myself 
and uh, they, a poor woman tried to have like a family counseling session and she ended up crying. I ended up comforting her. <laughs> it was sad. You were comforting but, the counselor? Uh, yeah, I was. Yeah, I was. <laughs> she was like, I'm, I remember that part. She was like, I'm so sorry. This was a terrible idea. And like, I remember being face to face with my parents and just, I didn't have any con. I didn't talk with my dad for like six, the first six months after the incident. He wanted nothing to do with me. And my mom had very little contact with me. She would occasionally take a phone call, but she was very angry for a long time. What was the outcome of the trial? So that was crazy. <laughs> um, the outcome was that I was given a charge of criminally negligent homicide, uh, which is like the lowest form of homicide that you can get. I know today. Uh, and intoxicated driving or driving under the influence. And then they dropped the charge of leaving the scene. And it was three years with two held in advance with one year to serve. The, the judge was the one who court ordered me to treatment and at the time in Alaska under SB 91, I was allowed to have that as because the judge had ordered me to it. And two, I guess the other reason is I know today, I didn't know then, legally speaking, like I wasn't old enough to be in women's prison yet. And I was charged as an adult with manslaughter originally, which is a much more serious felony. It's the letter grade you don't want. But... Yeah, it, it didn't end up happening like that for whatever reason. What ended up happening? What, uh, what ended up happening, I wasn't, I wasn't 18. So, like, an example is when I was done with treatment, when they said, okay, we can't have you here anymore, you finished all the curriculum, it's time for you to go, I was still 17, and the court ordered me to do a bed-to-bed -bed transfer. And so my lawyer picked me up from treatment and brought me to prison. Prison, the Highland said, we can't take you. We don't book people here. So they, we drove to Anchorage Jail. Anchorage Jail said, we can't take you. You're not 18 yet. And so then my lawyer took me to McLaughlin. And McLaughlin's like, we can't take you. You've been charged as an adult. And so I was sitting in the parking lot of McLaughlin with my lawyer, and he was like, I didn't know if it was so hard to get into prison. And I'm like, I didn't either. <laughs> oh, my God. What a just insane situation. It was pretty crazy. And then we ended up getting a, a judge magistrate to, like, like, a special waiver or something that would let me be in adult jail basically. And so, you know, that Friday night I got, I booked at Anchorage jail and, you know, until we were able to have a bail hearing. But I mean, so that was just an example, but I was given that, that nine, nine and a half months of migrant credit. And obviously it's very contentious decision for him, but I'm so grateful that he, you know, that he did that 
because I, I think it saved my life. Like, I think if I would have just gone straight to prison, you know, by special waiver, I don't think I would be in law school today. I really just wanted to die. And, you know, people wouldn't let me. Because um, I still have a lot of grief. So instead of a year in prison, you, you spent three months. Do I understand that correctly? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And when you came out, were you fixed? No. <laughs> what what did you worse. have? Oh, really? So how, how did you get end up getting sober? Well, no, I mean, I, I was sober through all of it. But how, how did you stay sober, I guess, after you? Oh, after you how did I stay sober? Killed? Oh, well, so I kind of like back in that Providence Discovery Hospital room, like I ended up having like a conversation with a higher power. You know, I had my come to Jesus moment, if you will, my foxhole prayer of saying, I can't die because that obviously is not what you want. <laughs> so I think I'm going to try to spend every single day as like a living amend to try to make this right if I can make it right. And that motivation, that seed of where to go and how to be sober and happy, you know, people with stories just like mine or people who'd done way worse or, you know, or just like had the same problem as me. Like I'd met them before I knew where the solution was at. Like I knew, I knew where to get help if I'd wanted it. And so when I was in treatment, the saving grace about that treatment center is that, you know, people from the outside would come in and do recovery meetings like every Saturday. And, you know, I was able to get my sponsor's phone number I didn't have any relationship with my parents, but like I had three women in recovery that were on my ROI and just bless their heart. Cause I called them like every day <laughs> to the point where my grand sponsor was like, you're a really good caller. <laughs> and I was like, thanks. <laughs> I don't have anybody else to call. <laughs> um, but I just, I wanted what they had. And so what has your mission become now in life? I think Broadly, my mission is, like, I know that I have no business being around alcohol at all. And, two, I just really just want to be, like, of service, I guess. I just don't want to ever cause harm again. I just want to be, I just want to be a good daughter. I want to be dependable. I want to be, you know, and I, I am those things today. I talk to my dad every single day. He is probably my best friend, and I talk to my mom every single day. I just want to show up for them because I, I think they got it the worst. I think a lot of people thought that they were bad parents. How could you not see that your daughter had a problem? <laughs> and, I, you know, I think they were, they were victims, too. 
Is there anything you want to leave people with at the end of this story? I would really like to leave people with two things. The first thing is that I don't necessarily think that prison is the answer for everybody. Maybe three things. (laughs) And I, I say that, I say that from like, not only now, like a legal perspective, but I also mean it for like, I think my story is like a prime example of, you know, there was cries for like justice not being done, right? That, you know, that I didn't serve enough time or, you know, like they may be right. The criminal justice system is not about the victim. Uh, The state sets themselves up as the victim, as procuring social harm. And, you know, I think victims need more of a voice. Survivors need more of a voice in the process. If they are to feel like they're going to get justice, like the justice that they want, you know. Two, I'd also like to say that even if you do something bad, like I think I'm a prime example, like if you want to turn your life around, no matter how far down you go, you can if you really try. And it's not easy. You have to change absolutely everything. I don't even have a lot of the same friends from high school that I do. It's been hard. It's not about me. You know, and, you know, that's why I'm becoming an attorney, because it's not about me. What is it about? What What's it about? Mm-hmm. It's about being a resource, being of service to my community at a, at a broader level. It's about community change. I have a master's degree in restorative justice, and, like, I think, like, Anchorage and could really use like a restorative justice center where people could, survivors and perpetrators could face each other and the community could say to that perpetrator, what you did was wrong. Like what they do in Cake Alaska. I think there's a lot of stuff that we can learn from indigenous tribes about tribal justice practices because they're effective. Right. And, and just to summarize briefly, what, what you yeah. mean is instead of just sending somebody off to jail, if they if they hurt somebody, if they assault someone, bringing them back, having the two of them talk and, and the restorative element there is that there's there's sort of more accountability. It's it's um, and it's it's about trying to to, yeah, restore the community rather than just pull somebody out and send them to jail and, and then bring them back right into the a similar, the same bad situation. Yeah, without, yeah. And and the way that the criminal justice system works is that proceduralism doesn't uh, give voice to what, what the survivor's needs are. And I'm being really right. purposeful with my language in that because in restorative justice, you know, we don't like the word victim because it's so one-dimensional and survivor, it better encapsulates somebody's pain and process through crime, which really is an injury against a person and a community. And like, we're all responsible. Like if crime goes up in a community, it's not an individual moral failing. It's because something in our community is wrong. 
And instead of banishing somebody or turning another cheek, restorative justice sees a solution beyond that, where the community can come together and help each other and say what they need to say so that healing can occur. If I could go back that day and be the one that died, I, you know, I would. If I had a time machine, it would just, because that would take away so much grief, you know? Mm -hmm. Not for me, but for a lot of other people. And I'll never be able to make that right, ever. Right, right. But do you feel like you've been able to forgive yourself? I think I'm in the process of forgiving myself. I think the more that I share my story, the more people that I I get to help. But I, I don't know if I'll ever be able to fully forgive myself. Mm-hmm. It's a very hard thing to do, even if everyone else is forgiving you. That's the crazy thing about it. Mm-hmm. That was Alexandra. She's a native of Anchorage, Alaska, and I spoke with her from her apartment in Vermont, where she is currently studying law. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska. As I said at the beginning of the program, I acknowledge stories like these are extremely different depending on whose point of view you are seeing them through. I welcome Alaska-based story submissions that present the other sides of the trauma of alcoholism. Today's episode was produced in collaboration with Recover Alaska, whose mission is to help Alaskans live free from the consequences of alcohol misuse so we are all empowered to achieve our full potential. There's more information and links to support for those suffering the effects of alcoholism at recoveralaska.org. You can also call the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration Helpline at 1-800-662-HELP. Again, that's 1-800-662-HELP. Remember, these are the stories we tell up here in Alaska on Dark Winter Nights. I'm Rob Prince. Dark Winter Nights True Stories from Alaska is sponsored by Scratch Band. Take a look at your hands. They're so great at picking stuff up. In fact, sometimes they're better at picking stuff up than things that are designed to pick stuff up. If you ever reach down while vacuuming to pick up a stubborn piece of lint and stick it into the end of the vacuum, you know what I'm talking about. Unfortunately, they're actually too good at picking things up. So when they pick up that dime off the floor, they can also pick up all kinds of germs with it. And since hands are great at scratching your face as well, you can end up literally rubbing those germs into your eyes, nose, and mouth. Until now. ScratchBand allows you to scratch your face with your wrist instead of your hands, and frankly, ScratchBand is terrible at picking stuff up. When you do want to sanitize it, you need only pop it into the dishwasher or even the microwave. ScratchBand. Join the evolution. More information at scratchband.life.